Rise Up Chorus presents Meet the Musicians, a podcast dedicated to exploring the amazing stories of musicians from all across the industry. And now, here's your host, Matthew Lapine. Welcome to the 14th episode of Meet the Musicians podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Lapine, and I'm thrilled to be leading you through a musician's story. As we approach the end of our first podcasting season, I want to take a moment to thank all of you for being loyal listeners to Meet the Musicians. This podcast has grown and evolved very quickly over this first season, and we're so glad that you enjoy listening to it. Please be sure to tell all of your friends about Meet the Musicians and help us grow our listening community. We want everyone to be part of the story. Today's episode welcomes back our guest host, Helen Kernazan, to our podcast. If this is your first time listening, Helen is a longtime friend and she is the Youth Chorus Director at Rise Up Chorus. This episode is the next episode of our series discussing the issues of race with professional classical musicians and music educators of color. The conversation that you are about to hear is inspirational, and I hope that it leads to action in our music community. Our guest is Brandon Waddles, and I'll let Helen sing his praises. Now, here is Helen Kernazan in her interview with Brandon Waddles on Meet the Musicians. Hello and welcome. I have with me today Dr. Brandon Waddles. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. It's like being here with family now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is going to be really fun. I hope we won't bore people too much with our little jokes and stuff. <laughs> So I'm going to start with a little bit about you for our viewers that may not know. Um, like I said, this is Dr. Brandon Waddles. He's originally from Detroit and attended a magnet, uh, magnet Renaissance High School there where he was a member of an elite auditioned choir. And then he went on to the renowned HBCU Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, where he received his Bachelor's of the Arts in Music. And then he went on to get his Master's of Music in Voice Performance and Pedagogy from Westminster Choir College of Ryder University in Princeton, New Jersey. Then he hopped on over to Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, where he became Dr. Waddles when he earned his PhD in Music Education with a Choral Conducting Emphasis. Now, before you were pursuing your doctorate, I believe that's when you and I met when you served on the conducting and sacred music faculty at Westminster, um, right, of the Westminster Jubilee Singers. So that is so awesome. So did I miss anything? Tell me. You, nope. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. You were just fine. I mean, you went all the way back to high school. So yes, that, I had to. I had to. That, that took me back. Oh, my God. You know, because not everybody has that um, performing arts high school background. And when people do, because I didn't. And when people do, I like to highlight it because it's kind of like you started in conservatory even before you went to college. I think that's really cool. It was it was a crucial time mention. for me. Um, you know, I had I had no desire to sing or be in choir before high school. Wow. I started out as a classically trained pianist, just like my father. So we'll talk about that later. Um, and Nina Scott, who is still like a mother to me, um, took me in. I was, you know, kind of dragged me in. And from that very first rehearsal, and it's so interesting, the very first piece we did as an entire choir was Andre Thomas's uh, setting 
um, a, a spiritual setting and who, you know, would think that more than 10 years down the line, I'd be working with him on the last leg of my academic career um, at Florida State. So all, you know, circle, big circle, all a big circle, sometimes zigzag of a circle, yes. but it, it, it works. I met with my friend, um, Wayne Mallette. Do you know Wayne? Mm, yeah. Okay. So uh, you're just yeah. proving my point that you know mm -hmm. Wayne because uh, we were talking about how small the music education world is, right? And then how small the choral music education world is, right? Yeah. And then how small the black music education world is, right? Mm -hmm. And it just gets, you know, and so it's like everybody knows each other. So you have to watch what you say and you have to be nice to everybody, um, because you never know, like, oh, th yeah, that I, like you said, oh, I worked with this person here, and and it's just so, it's actually really cool that it's we're all cool. a big and family. I we're hope it teaches. I hope it teaches everybody a valuable lesson. I know this is nowhere on our plate for discussion <laughs> today, but I always, today, you know, I don't, I don't consider myself at any high level, but to know some of the people that I know, and then they're connected to other people that I might one day want to work with. You right. have to be careful. This is for everybody. You have to be careful about what you say, what you post, you know. Oh, my Absolutely. gosh. Absolutely. Some, Internet some, is forever. Yeah, forever. <laughs> forever. And people don't even realize the things that they post, how many jobs they've just lost. Right. Potential opportunity. Potential. Career, oppor right. career opportunity. But, yeah, anyway. Right. Ah. No, no, it's true. It's so true. Mm -hmm. So you are so amazing and you are so young and you are so accomplished. And just your geographical journey alone is so interesting because a lot of people get comfortable, right? They'll go to a school in their state and then they will come back and work in their old high school or, and I'm not poo-pooing that either, but, um, it's so interesting that you have studied in four different states, and I guess um, I want to know first, I want to know about Morehouse. What brought you to Morehouse? When did Morehouse get on your radar? Tell me whatever you want to share about Morehouse. Nina Scott, once again, is the foundation for me, for me on, on that level um, of music education. Um, she was always very pertinent um, about that. She really wanted her students to go into teaching. Um, she was the one that introduced me to the National Association of Negro Musicians Incorporated, which has been in existence since 1919. And this was the place that the first conference, national conference I attended was in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I was just about to head into my sophomore year of high school. Um, if anyone can believe it, I was transitioning from first tenor to baritone, if anybody can even think about <laughs> this voice trying to reach up and saying I was a first tenor my my first year in high school, um, and then just went downhill from there. But anywho, um, NAM uh, for short was where I met the likes of Adolphus Hill Stork um, and Roland Carter, all of these great legends whose names I'd only seen on scores beforehand, and so it was a very eye-opening experience for me. Um, but this is also the place where I met Dr. Yuzi Brown, who was my voice teacher at uh, at Morehouse College, and also Dr. David Edward Morrow, longtime conductor of the Glee Club. Shortly thereafter or before I saw the Glee Club perform at Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, which was one of the historic Black Baptist churches in Detroit. And if anybody has seen the Morehouse Glee Club perform in concert, they use what is called dispatch to enter 
into whatever auditorium performing stage. Um, and it is a very quick and hurried but disciplined walk, almost a rush up to the stage. And from that moment on, I knew, and they opened their mouths to sing, you know, Brothers Sing On, which is how Glee Club starts every concert. And I just knew from then on, from the moment they opened their mouths, before they opened their mouths, I said, that's where I want to be. I just knew. Um, we would go on uh, tours. The choir would go on tours. The high school choir would go on tours every around February, around this time, actually, and visit his various um, HBCUs, mostly. Um, so we would go to Morgan State. We would go to Hampton University. We would go to Norfolk State. We would go to all of these. Um, but I knew every year Morehouse that was that was where I was headed um you know I, I to talk about you know geographical journey I, I joke with my grandmother a lot because I have always been one to travel we love to travel and now my grandmother does it through me vicariously um because of age and you know and all of that but um you know I'm going to Cairo Egypt but I've been uh, next month but I've been traveling since I was young so it was nothing for me to state that, you know, when it was time to go for college, I, I had to get, you know, I wanted to be away from home. Um, it's so interesting for me to be back here once again, circle. Um, but yeah, Morehouse, uh, even before I got on campus, I just saw something in a sea of black men rushing to create something beautiful. It was, that was, that was the concept for me. They could not wait to get to that stage to embrace in communal art history. And I've never seen anything like it before. I'll never see anything like it again. You know, that, that was why. You just, sorry, you have, I have tears in my eyes. Just what you just said, that really like, that penetrated my soul. <laughs> mm -hmm. Their urgency to get on stage and share their love of art and beauty and and the pride mm -hmm. for what they were singing and and well, that's really powerful. Um, so of course now a little total sidebar. <laughs> when I was at Westminster, yeah. my best friend left me to go to Morehouse. <laughs> Samad at the time. Do you know Samad? Yeah. I actually have his graduate. He oh. killed me. <laughs> now you know. Baby Samad. Yes. <laughs> Oh my God. So yeah, that's my best friend. That's my, so actually um, we had in Jubilee, mm -hmm. total, this is a total sidebar. In Jubilee, um, we had a grad student that was from Hampton University. Mm -hmm. And all of my close friends just happened to be people in Jubilee because of the connection we made through music yeah. making there. And literally, I'm not even joking with you. By the end of my sophomore year, all of them, all of them transferred to HBCUs and left me alone at Westminster. I, I had a friend you know, went to Shaw. Yeah. I had a friend went to FAMU. And I had a friend went to Morehouse. They all left me. And then this grad student, obviously, he graduated. Yeah. So that was that. So I was all alone. Oh, my gosh. That is but, so you know, yeah, it was. And, and I... I when we we're going to talk about Westminster mm -hmm. right now. And um, so what, what then brought you to Westminster? <laughs> I talk about the zigzag and I, it's so funny to have these conversations with, you know, I'm still relatively young, 33 on Sunday. Praise God. 
um, thank you. <laughs> and um, I often talk to younger students about so many of the things that I had planned for my life. And they didn't turn out that way, but they turned into something even, they blossomed into something even better than I would have planned for myself. Um, by the end of Morehouse, I had decided that I was going to be the next Dalton Baldwin, you know, the next Martin Katz, the next um, Gerard, you know, all of the great collaborative pianists that we know of, um, because I started out as a classically trained pianist. And even as I was at in high school in Detroit, I would work with my high school colleagues, accompanying them and actually just starting to do coaching before I knew what voice coaching was with the with the old yellow book of Italian hits, as we call them. <laughs> um, you know, they would ask me, you know, what is it that you hear? Anywho, I've always had a love for that. I still do. I think it's translated into a lot of what I do with choirs now. Um, but I, I really wanted to go into collaborative piano. Uh, as it turns out, you know, I just had not had even the desire to practice pianistically as you would need to imagine from a professional level when a lot of these piano performance students are getting out of bachelor's programs. You know, there's only a small percentage of them that are going to make it as actual, you know, concert stage pianists. What do the most of them, rest of them do? They go into collaborative piano. They have the skills to play Liszt and Brahms and all of that. So, you know, they can play through Erlkönig like it's nothing. You know, they already have that technique. They just have to learn, you know, the vocal end of it. Um, I didn't have the piano in and that's uh, not to the level that it needed to be, you know, and that's the truth of the matter. Um, I had a horrible private lesson with a an amazing collaborative pianist who shall not be named. Um, and um, I had uh, interviewed or, you know, applied to, to one particular university. They denied it. And I emailed this particular person. I said, why? I just, I'm so upset. And this person let me have it. And he let me have the truth about it. So um, I was on a tour bus, Morehouse. We were in California. And I called another university for which I had already made it past uh, pre-screening. I was I had an audition schedule and I canceled it. And I called my father, who is a classically trained pianist, who is a concert pianist, who would practice four hours a day at least. And I said, I want to come home after college. He said, come home. And I took a gap year, um, which was crucial for me. Um, I came home. I sang in the uh, opera chorus at Michigan Opera Theater. Uh, we do Rigoletto, Verdi's Rigoletto, one of my favorites. Um, but I started studying voice again. Um, and I decided, because of a few colleagues of mine, older mentors of mine, I should say, that attended Westminster, I said, oh, wow. And then I looked, I said, oh, my gosh, Dalton Baldwin is there. Those that don't know, Dalton Baldwin is one of, was one of our heralded um, uh, collaborative pianists who worked with the likes of Gerard Suze and Ellie Ameling and the late, great Jesse Norman, um, but just a wonderful gem of a man. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to sneak my way in. So I'm going to go into voice and pedagogy. And uh, that way, I'll be able to kind of sneak my way in with Dalton. It didn't happen that way. <laughs> I re recall, uh, so interesting, my audition, uh, Sharon Sweet was in the room. Um, 
Nova Thomas was in the room. Scott McCoy was in the room. Um, and they were the ones, after I sang, they were the ones that told me, oh, you need to be doing voice performance and pedagogy. Um, Akiko Hosaki was, it's all so interesting because Sharon emailed me afterwards. Sharon Sweet, well-known Metropolitan Opera Soprano, love her to death. Um, and Akiko Hosaki came to be my voice coach um, and a accompanist but, and a collaborative pianist, but she was also a mentee of Baldwin who was teaching there, but more so in, um, how shall I say, uh, um, in, in an emeritus fashion, emeritus fashion. Um, I did get to work with him, not as a pianist, but as a singer. Um, and I'm so grateful for that experience. But um, it just ended up being something completely different. So very, di- I mean, it zigzagged in a way I would have never imagined preparing to go to Westminster. Um, but once again, better than anything that I would have planned for myself. Absolutely. I, I know that was a lot, but I, I, I oh. don't regularly tell that story. But thinking about <laughs> it now, where I am now, it's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. It was so necessary. And it's so interesting because um, Samad and I often, he also went to performing arts high school mm-hmm. in, um, in Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah. He went to Cicely Tyson. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we talked about, uh, um, you know, and I, more, coming from Morehouse, right, mm-hmm. where you have this strong brotherhood, it's an all-male HBCU, and then to come to a place like Westminster where you can literally count the minorities <laughs> on your hand, um, I asked Samad, I said, do you think if you had gone to Morehouse first and then come to Westminster, you would have been more prepared in terms of the culture shock situation? And he said, you know, that's really interesting. And his ultimate answer was, I think so, yes. Because, and, and you can attest to this, that Morehouse and all HBCUs, they ingrain in you, this should be the only HBCU attend because you need to go out and, and spread the love and, and your education with other institutions. And, and so I, I guess my question to you is, um, and like you said, everything happens for a reason. The journey, although it may have been unexpected, you wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. What was your experience like at Westminster was um, in terms of being a black HBCU educated male musician? Yeah. Oh my gosh. First of all, I have to hark back to something, harken back to something you said, because I was on a talk and there was a committee and one of the committee members was uh, an alumnus of uh, Morgan State University. And anybody that, especially when you, you know, singing in the choirs and part of the music department, you always say the illustrious Morgan State University or the illustrious film. And it is exactly like that, that that training, although we all have a great love for each other. You know, your pride for your institution is like none other. Um, And I'm so grateful that I was at Morehouse before I got to Westminster. So you are very right in that. Um, even though I was at, you know, a predominantly, you know, black institution, it really in a way prepared me for what I needed to do at Westminster. And I didn't know all that I needed to do at Westminster until I got there. In preparing, when I was there for my audition, I ran into a good friend from who had just graduated from Spelman, which if you don't know, Spelman is right next door. Morehouse, Brittany Boykin, 
um, who is on the faculty now at Spelman and also at uh, several other universities. She'll be finishing up her uh, doctorate in just a few months. Very proud of her. But we came there together as master's students at Westminster. There were two of us. Two of us. Um, and I remember, you know, you know, coming up and, you know, was in symphonic choir and, uh, you know, grateful to be part of uh, um, Westminster Choir with uh, Joe Miller, who was there, you know, as a director of core activities, um, is now at C uh, CCM, Cincinnati Conservatory. Um, and I just remember being there and I remember Jubilee being there as well. And I did sing in Jubilee for a year and then I was, worked with them as, a, as an accompanist and coach at times um, before I graduated. But I just remember there just being a great lack of representation of African-American sacred music. And I don't know, I was just so fiery. Maybe it was just because of where I'd been at Morehouse and I just had this take charge attitude about me. And I literally, I think that I left a rehearsal. I can't remember whose choir rehearsal it was, but I stepped out of that thing and I went upstairs into uh, Williamson and I walked up that tower, that tower of sorts. And I, and I walked straight into Joe Miller's office and I said, we're not programming enough African sacred music. And I guess at that point, they all just said, well, why don't you write it? And I did. Um, and I started to. And Wait, that's so is that literally when you started mm -hmm. arranging? Stop. Wow. I kid you not. I that kid you not. Um, I had a colleague of mine who was in Westminster Choir with me, who was also a GA at the time for uh, Williamson Voices under James Jordan. And um, he asked me to arrange something for them. And so I did. And I just kept writing. And, I'm, and I have to also be grateful for Joe and James Jordan and Amanda Quist, who, who published these things with their series. I mean, they, they encouraged it. So Fix Me Jesus, Balm and Gilead, or Ride in the Chariot, which still to this day has been you know, probably the most successful of all of mine were because I went upstairs into that office and raised hell. And I said, and I'm tired of us waiting until the end of rehearsal to read through this stuff and rehearse it. I said, this isn't, this isn't the way. And, um, and they, you know, heard me out for, for better or worse and, and, and we never stopped. And it's interesting because you said there were two black grad students, you and, mm -hmm. and, and Brittany and, my, I'm not saying that my experience at Westminster was five million times more diverse because it wasn't, but um, when I was there, there were a lot more black students, mm -hmm. although you could still count them on your hand. I had 10 in my class. Mm -hmm. And so if you can count them, it's not enough, right? So, <laughs> so I had 10 in my class. And then the grad students, Alan Pinckney, Liz Stevens, Lucia Bradford, Steve Kirby, uh, Jason Dungy, Candice Hoyos, um, and I think I might be missing uh, um, uh, Shannon Hunt. Mm -hmm. um, but again, mm -hmm. if you could if you can name them, it's clearly not enough, right? But for me, when I was in Jubilee, I was one of the only white people in it, and um, and I loved I loved 
being a part and being embraced by the members of Jubilee. And my experience in Jubilee, and um, at the time the um, the founder and, and conductor, uh, Dr. Dumson, um, he instilled in me the obviously the passion for the music, of course, that was first. But not only that, the African-American history that just was not taught. It just was not taught, not only not at Westminster, but in grade school, in, in secondary and primary. Um, and I was in AP U.S. history, and we still didn't cover it, you know. Um, and it, it's just so, so crazy um, to think that as an 18-year-old, I'm hearing the first time about Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. That's when I learned what it was. I mean, why are we, and I, I can tell you, I, I have adult friends that they were 68 the first mm-hmm. time they heard about Juneteenth. You know, and of course, now this is a passion and a charge of mine to not only educate my students, but also the staff where I work. Um, I think it's so interesting that so many of us as music educators have been tasked with the, with teaching just general history. Um, and we have to teach it through the score. Um, I think the pandemic, uh, the panoramic is some of my... <laughs> culture friends like to like to call it has uh sat all of us down and made us examine um process over product and so now it's not just about gathering up the notes and rhythms to prepare for you know a, a barnyard closer um but it is really what's the reason for somebody not having anything else in them but to moan out, fix me, Jesus, fix me. Or there's a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Why not only the collective history of, you know, the enslaved Africans or the African slave during the antebellum period, but the personal intimacy, you know, it could have just been one person that started this out and somebody finished it along for them, but they had to have something going on inside the home and inside themselves before. But we've had to, we've had to teach that because, you know, they weren't teaching it in AP U.S. history or they weren't, it's not, or it's being expressed horribly inaccurately um, in, in some of the books that we came up with. And apparently that is still out now. Um, yeah, well, you know, you're you're there, you know. Yeah. So I, my library is full, not just of of you know music books, music history books, but just history books in general that are you know that are written by us, you know, because who else is going to tell it right, you know? But we who have descended from those who experienced, right? Um, I, yeah. The the best thing I took from U.S. history, which really blew my mind open as a 17-year-old kid was um, we would read three three versions of every event. Mm-hmm. And it was the conservative, mm-hmm. the liberal, and the moderate. Mm-hmm. And it like the, the adjectives, even the titles, right? Like the what we call in the U.S. the Boston Massacre. You know, Britain, Br- a British article called it the, um, uh, the Boston revolt, mm. right? You know, and it, it's, it's, it's so interesting. You just change 
the person who's telling the story mm-hmm. and the content and the context changes. Yeah. And we were talking about this, um, about Martin Luther King. Yeah. And a lot of my white friends and colleagues will always post about Dr. King's message of peace. And, and although he, of course, he believed in doing things with civil discourse, mm-hmm. he also showed a great discontent and a great rise to action for the white moderates who were incredibly um, mm-hmm. uh, judgmental and didn't like him really at, mm-hmm. well, during his time, right? And we don't talk about that in school. We just talk about how great he was and how everyone hold, held hands and sang Kumbaya and then poof, racism disappeared. <laughs> well, I, you know, I want us to think, and this would be a complete, completely different conversation, but think about the stuff that got him killed. And it's the same stuff that disenfranchised because they, you know, they, they really don't like to talk about Malcolm. But when Martin and Malcolm finally got on the same page is when that's when they said, no, 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 no. Or, you know, or we'll rarely read a, a James Baldwin quote. You know, they don't they don't like to talk about Baldwin because once they got in their minds that we're not here to elevate and I use that term elevate up to the, the the caste standard you know we've already been good on our own you know as individuals we don't have to you know don't have to lift up to any particular standard that western european classicism has has uh you know standardized for us you know but anywho that's that yeah. <laughs> I, I, you made me think imagine a world where dr king Malcolm X, Angela Davis, mm-hmm. um, uh, James Baldwin, although he probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have wanted to be, they were senators. Imagine a world oh, where they were in Congress. Yeah. Like, literally, the entire civil, all of the black leaders mm-hmm. during the most crucial time in our history yeah. were eliminated. Yeah. And imagine a world where those people were sitting on, you know, in, in, in the seats with mm-hmm. John Lewis. Yeah. Imagine, wow. Sorry, just total sidebar. What um, ifs? The what ifs of, the of, what ifs. of, of world but history, here, I tell you. Mm-hmm. And that's why we are yeah. uh, charged with this now, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess my, how did you come to work at Westminster? Um, because I know I, I actually, I was a part of the hiring committee of the gentleman well mm-hmm. it wasn't the choice i'm not when we want to talk names but um the person we all decided at salisha newsom mm-hmm. uh laquita mitchell and i were all apart and the person that we i think deborah ford might have also been on that committee um uh i we all agreed on mm-hmm. someone and mm-hmm. he was not even on their radar mm-hmm. and um and although although i think it is incredibly empowering for you know dr miller to charge you with composing music and um i had a conversation with a friend it's a mutual friend of mm-hmm. ours i'm not going to say their name because i don't want to embarrass mm-hmm. them but they called me during their um 
music of 19th century class. Mm-hmm. And she just randomly said to me, can you name, can you name five black classical composers? And I said, I'll name you 20. And I just, mm-hmm. yeah. I did not know I was on speaker in her class. And later she called me back. <laughs> she, she caught me. She happened to catch me between classes and I picked up. Mm-hmm. And she called me back and she said, would you believe that such and such professor, I asked her, why are we not covering any black composers? And her answer was, black classical composers, and her mm-hmm. answer was, there are none. Uh-huh. And then she went on to say, don't worry, we'll cover them during jazz. And so, and and that that's when it goes back to the systematic system that we were talking about before, how it's just not taught. And now this was a professor with a doctorate in musicology, music history. And if you don't, if it's not being taught, how are we to know? Yeah. You know, and and so I want to know. So so, total sidebar, and I apologize for that. Mm -mm. But it's so important, I think, to understand the culture at, and not just at Westminster. And I love Westminster, and I wouldn't trade my education for anything in the world. However... Um, there are holes, there are gaps, and and not just at Westminster, I would dare say at all conservatories, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so how did you come to work at Westminster, and what were some of the classes that you taught in addition, right? Because you did oh. do some, oh, you did not, mm. you did not. No, that's very interesting, I know. Okay, yeah. so, because so that let's, was something yeah. that we were mm-hmm. requiring, when we were doing this, I said, you know, if you hire someone for Jubilee, they must also teach. It can't just be that only the Jubilee kids are getting this education. So every Westminster graduate should be able to take this elective mm-hmm. soon, should they so choose. So, so ahead, let's, ta- let's talk about that. Um, I know of that story of which you just spoke. And I know of why, you know, we are. No, I think we all know of why you all's choice was not, you know. But anyway, um, when to, to harken back to something earlier, even before then, you know, when you talk about your experience and the number of, of, uh, of black grad students that were present there, all of that had, had switched by the time I got there. I'm not sure why. Um, you know, there, like I said, it was me and it was Brittany and me as grad students. And there were certainly more, well, first of all, when I got there, Dumson, Dr. Dumson had just left. You know, he was going to pursue his doctorate. So grateful that he did. Um, and so the new uh, um, instructor came to, to conduct and the numbers were, whew, it almost died. You know, Jubilee almost died. Um, but I will say even then, that the uh, percentage was more white students than there were black in Jubilee. Um, and remained, and I can say probably remained that time, you know, when I was at, at Westminster um, and, and teaching, you know, conducting Jubilee. Um, I'm, I, you know, I mean, first of all, like we said, you know, we could count how many black students, even in the undergrad level, um, on one hand, really. Uh, you know, and there had been such... Um, questioning about the validity of Jubilee, even from black students during my time at Westminster, black undergrad students, you know, 
unfortunately, the cast system of it all had all placed, you know, ensembles like Westminster Choir and Williamson Voices at the top here. And then you have, you know, it's a cast system, systematic. Um, and so, Westminster, you know, Jubilee singers, specifically during the time that I was a master's student, had really just for a variety of reasons. I was getting prepared to walk. I was getting that. I, it was during the week heading into commencement um, and had found out that the instructor had been let go. Um, and it was asked of me if I'd be interested in taking over. Um, that was just a, a brief conversation. I also thanked my, my voice teacher who said, she said, honey, I put in for you. She said, I told him. I said, there's nobody else for it. I'm grateful for that. It wasn't until Spileto um, Festival, you know, Westminster Choir always goes to Spileto Festival. And I told Dr. Miller, I said, I'm, I'm interested and I want you to, I told him, I said, I'm interested and I want you to consider me. And then a few weeks after we got back, um, Dr. Steve Pilkington, um, um, who has been part of a line of very supportive people in, in Jubilee, I believe, um, uh, approached me and said, you know, we would like for you to take over at least as interim. Um, and so really that was supposed to take place for, you know, a year. Um, and I ended up there for three years. Um, there were, there was to be at least one or two courses, um, that I would have taught in conjunction, uh, with Jubilee. However, these classes were on the docket, um, while I was a student, but never ran. When I talk mm. about never ran, they they didn't make it. They didn't make it because there weren't enough people actually applying for the courses. Mm. And now here's so, a question: mm -hmm. Were they were they under the music history uh, feel, or they were under they sacred, were under sacred music, music? They were under sacred which, music. Which, of course, as you know, as a music student, mm -hmm. regardless of your degree. We are graduating with 130 credits, 136 mm -hmm. credits, whereas most undergrad programs are 124. Mm -hmm. So there is no room. No room. So it's almost, it's almost as though mm -hmm. they were destined to fail before they began. And I don't know if that was in subconscious, mm -hmm. intentional, uh, I don't know. I wasn't there. Yeah, um, I don't, uh, you know, make no judgment call on that. What I will say is I, I, you know, I was fortunate to be able to sit in a number of uh, departmental meetings as we were toward the end of my time at Westminster, um, starting to form an, uh, a newly revised sacred music curriculum. Which, in, which was inclusive of urban music education, you know, um, urban sacred music education and all of that. And there were a number of classes that I put in the docket um, that I felt needed to be taught there. Um, I do believe now that some of those classes are actually being taught. I'm so grateful for um, one of my students who is now the conductor of Jubilee, uh, Professor Fenway Brown. Um, who has uh, taken on the responsibility wonderfully um, and is not only um, teaching, you know, conducting Jubilee, but teaching, you know, um, I believe it's African-American um, music survey at Westminster, which is something during your time and even my time that didn't, we, exist. didn't exist, wasn't even thought of. So like we said, 
Jubilee took on the task of teaching American African about African American sacred music and just African American history in general, just black it, it black really you know the history of blacks in America. We had to take that on in addition to teaching the music, you know, and so that was a lot. So I mean, I, I let me say that I taught a number of classes within one class. Um, uh, when I when when before the my predecessor um, left from Westminster, I believe the group may have may have been ten people. Um, by the time that we finished, by the time I left, we were at fifty. By the time I left, we were at fifty, and that was and it was auditioned. Right. It was auditioned, and I capped. Um, and so I'm 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 really grateful. Um, for the time that I had there, um, you know, I wouldn't trade West, my Westminster time for anything. And that's not just my time in Jubilee. I mean, I remember, you know, we remember our experiences, first experience with the Philadelphia Orchestra, you know, I was singing the Brahms Requiem. It was one of Maestro Yannick's. It was our first time, you know, his first time collaborating. So I remember magical moments like that, or singing the Mahler. And I'll never, you know, I never take any of that um, for granted. But I will say for many of us, um, especially as um, Blacks and people of color, um, that uh, Westminster taught us to fight. Because if we didn't, we weren't going to survive. Right. For those that really came through and were able to make a distinct difference. And, you know, the reason that I, if ever I get called back to Westminster to do something like I just did for, um, for this past Christmas season, you know, there's an interesting story behind that, too, as you as you may recall from from recent posts, um, is that I, I fought while I was there and I wasn't going to stop until I until I got what what I wanted. And it wasn't just for me. It was for everyone that came after me so that they wouldn't have to go through what you went through so that they wouldn't have to go through what I went through. Yeah. And it's interesting, you kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, when when I was on my way out, um, it was around the time that uh, Dr. Dumpson was on his way to, I think he might have stayed on for maybe one or two years after mm -hmm. I graduated. And even while I was a grad student, I, I, went, I did the five-year mm -hmm. uh, yeah. music ed program. And so when I when I was a, a uh, an undergrad, uh, I'm sorry, when I was a graduate student, the freshmen, that class, a, a lot of them were from Artai in Newark, mm -hmm. and a lot of them didn't want to have anything to do with Jubilee because they didn't want to be, at that time it wasn't about an authentic mm -hmm. thing, like you said, people felt mm -hmm. that it wasn't an authentic experience, it was more about I don't want to be pigeonholed mm -hmm. to only be called on to sing the spirituals in perf class. I want to sing, you know, a, an aria from Romeo and Juliet. I want to sing, you know, an aria from The Marriage of Figaro. I don't want to be pigeonholed. I'm here to study, study opera, and that's what I want to do. And I thought that was interesting as well. Um, and many of and many of those people are 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 my dear friends today and love yes. them dearly and you know what um their concerns are are validated um i i certainly understand i i believe that we as 
humans should just, we as creatives should be able to create in whatever space that we want to. And it is unfortunate. And even, and let me tell you this, and being in Jubilee or not being in Jubilee did not stop that pigeonholing, you know, to be called for this or to be called for that, you know, um, it did not stop that, you know, and that's, that's unfortunate. Um, that is not an issue that is unique to Westminster. So I don't want us, yeah, so I I'm certainly don't want us to think, you know, I've, I've, you know, I'm so grateful that I, I had, you know, a man like Dr. Andre Thomas, who was at the head of things, really at the head of things at, at a PWI like Florida State University. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were things that I, in a sense, was sheltered from um, in comparison or contrast to some of my colleagues who were at PWIs working on their terminal degrees who did not have that kind of fathering and mentorship, um, you know. Some of us have gone through hell to get to where we are now. Yeah. Gone through hell. I think of what what you all, some some of you, especially those who started Jubilee, had to go through to get there. I think about the predecessor to Jubilee, my dear friend Roger Holland, and what he had to go through to even get an ensemble like like that running. You know, um, and so you all made a way for me to be able to do what I was able to do, you know, as little or as much as it was. And we just continued to try and help each other along. I think that's the way that it should be. But yeah, certainly. And I've talked to them. I've talked to them, those that sang in Jubilee, those that weren't in Jubilee and why they did, why they didn't. And all of it's very valid, you know. And I, I do believe, you know, Dr. Gumption towards his time, you know, and it was the same thing for me. And he and I talked frequently especially towards the end of my time at Westminster about, you know, what it is that you're able to give Westminster, what it is that they're going to be willing to receive to you, receive from you at that time. And he had given years and years more than I had. But at that time, he had given all that he was able to give at that. Well, let me say this. He was he had given all that Westminster was willing to receive at that time. Yes. And even for me, in three really in five, because I, I spent five years at Westminster, if you you know two masters, and I was still working. I was writing mm-hmm. for them, and then three years on you know um, on faculty, I had given all that you know that they were going to be willing to receive from me at that time, and I had to. And then you have to move to another level because the 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 perils of academia and academe, especially in higher ed, require of you this paper you know um and then they're going to oh well we can take some more from you now since you've got this paper which is which is nothing but just learning more about how to deal with you know professional academic politics and parlor tricks is one of my other mentors (laughs) would say the politics and parlor tricks of academia but yeah absolutely so i'm I'm curious um what you, you, I'm guessing you did a dissertation because you mm-hmm. did a PhD, right? Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your, if you want to share your yeah. dissertation topic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Thomas Whitfield. Um, and I've been on his case uh, <laughs> since Westminster. Westminster is where I started transcribing and arranging. There was so, oh my gosh. You know, it's so interesting. 
I was at an HBCU, just black culture and black music all around. But I didn't really start to hone in into my, uh, I guess, career as a researcher and scholar on black sacred music until I got to Westminster, where it was little so to none. That's crazy to me. Well, you know That's what it awesome. is? Where it, what it is, is it wasn't there and I had to create it. And I haven't stopped. I haven't stopped. So you create, you sometimes you just have to create the space that you're going to live in. Um, so that's that's what I'll say to that. But Thomas Whitfield was one of the great progenitors of contemporary gospel music, arguably um, the most crucial and certainly the least represented. So for a sense, it was connecting still to these people that have done so much and have been forgotten in the history of it all. Um, and so I'm once again, grateful to Dr. Andre Thomas, who supported a dissertation that looked at the work of a contemporary gospel artist in full as as in, in terms of bio, you know, historical research and analytical research in terms of his music. Which, to my knowledge, had not been done before on 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 a diss dissertation level. Um, and so uh, extending from that, um, I have been. Uh, researching more and doing a number of interviews with people who lived and worked with him and also just a number of people within the gospel community um, who are inspired by his work. And that list includes Donald Lawrence. It includes Kurt Carr. It includes Kurt Franklin. It includes Yolanda Adams, Vanessa Bell Armstrong. All of these names that we know were inspired by this man that too many don't. Um, and so uh, I'm working on a book project right now. And so it is my hope that within the next, you know, year and a half that that will be um, available. And um, I do believe that it will be the first, like I said, uh, bio that really looks into and peers into the life and work of any contemporary gospel artist. Because we don't have one on Edwin. We don't have one on Walter, Andre Crouch or James Cleveland or any of those. We don't we don't have it. We don't have it yet, which is crazy to say. But when you look at the history of scholarship on black gospel music it makes all the sense in the world you know so we've we've uh we've got to do that i'm so grateful to those that have come before me in terms of black gospel music scholarship like dr alicia lola jones and dr tammy kernertle and um uh, deborah smith dr deborah smith pollard and all my sister docs dr Brigitta johnson um who continue to kind of work in the vineyard um to make this uh the oral history accessible on paper um, that's really important for me um, because so much of our history has been kept out of the books um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I believe there is validity to us being able to tell our story. When you talked about the um, three different historical accounts, you know, the, uh, what do you say, conservative, the, the liberal and the moderate. I also think about the fourth historical perspective of the forgotten and the oppressed. Mm. And what it is that they have to say, and so now we have those books. We have cast. We have the new Jim Crow. We have. I'm just looking at my library right now. Um, you know, we have all of the Ibram Kendi and all of those who are writing and compiling the written documents of the forgotten and the oppressed, and their historical account, because it's altogether different. And it's not their their historical accounts are not based on, you know, the overarching surface of of history, you know, their accounts are 
personal and intimate. What was going on to me and mine, you know? And that's when you, that's when you really get to the heart of it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before, I, you just made me think, you're talking about personal accounts, and this is going back to the first thing that we were talking about mm-hmm. um, when you were talking about NAM. 1919, right? That was also around the time that the NAACP mm-hmm. began. And I'm saying that, you know, for my students to get the context there. Um, so it's very interesting, you know, how these things were happening around the same time. And, and, mm-hmm. and there was an outcry for a, a need for a place to congregate. Think about, in, in yeah. Mm-hmm. Historically, Dr. Eileen Southern she referred to something as the invisible church. Now, mm-hmm. when we talk about the antebellum period, antebellum being during the slavery era, you know, blacks, African, blacks were allowed to, in some instances, to sit in the back in church services with their masters who were up in front. But they weren't allowed most times to congregate as their own black church. So they would have to meet in secret. And she referred to those meetings as this invisible church. But all of Black culture and music is coded. We talk about the spiritual. There are sociocultural. There's the coded meaning of, you know, freedom and the Underground Railroad. So the invisible church relates so much to everything that goes on in history because we had to create our own secret spaces where it could just be us and we could, you know, um outcry and we could prepare for the outcry you know i i you know i can't impress your students enough you know and i'm sure you've talked to them about how this history is not old our my grandparents are still able to talk about the things that they weren't able to do they're still able to talk about the signs that were up i always think of think about and they come up it comes up in every documentary that famous infamous picture of that that sign up at the top of the building, a man was lynched today. And if you think about that, that sign could stay up for years and years because it was true, because a man, a black man or woman or child was being lynched every day, whether you knew about, whether you knew the person or not, you could just sit in your chair and think, somebody just got lynched today. And that's around the same time. And that's not too long ago from now. Which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. It is. And and while it and while we may not deal with literal lynchings now, Malcolm X talks about how the, the, the Ku Klux Klan they've taken off their hoods. Some of them have taken off their hoods and they've put on uh police uniforms, they've put on the judge robes, um, but some of them have put on the, the um uh teachers caps. They're teaching our students. They, and some of them have been so seated in it that they don't even realize that they are um, impressing systematic racism and implicit bias in the way that we not only teach uh, history, but also the, w- the way that we present music, which should be the most freeing of all art, you know, all educational spheres, not just art, but all educational spheres. They're teaching us to rigidity. Duke Ellington and Miles Davis, they didn't want to be just known as jazz musicians. They were American musicians. 
Quincy Jones said that um, before Duke died, that he he impressed upon him the necessity to decolonize American music, decolonize it. You know, that's what I'm here to do. Break the wheel. Break the wheels of music education. I know you're here to do the same thing. Yeah. Yes, I am. And, you know, it's so I'm I'm a part of a few groups on Facebook and um, some of them are just so frustrating. I can't with music colleagues. And, you know, I I have to admit a little bit of naivete and it's probably because I am a white woman that I I believed and I, I still believe that musicians are more liberal than your average citizen. But I, I believe that all musicians were, were like me. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and that is not the case. And I've had conversations and I've had to remove myself from these groups because people are still teaching uh, songs that are just inappropriate and, and they don't know why. But even when they're told why, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, it's just a song. And, and it's not just a song to that black and brown child mm-hmm. that is sitting in your seat. And um, Mommy Brain, I cannot remember his name, but I was watching, <laughs> I was watching um, The Daily Show, which I yeah. love. And Tre- Trevor Noah was Trevor, interviewing, yeah. he was interviewing the gentleman that... Um, Oh my god, and I can't even remember the play. The play actually just came off Broadway, like right before the pandemic began. Oh wow! And it was it was about. I'm gonna send it to. I'm gonna look mm-hmm. it up right after this, and I'm gonna send it to you. And he was talking about he grew up in the South, and he had a, uh, his best friend was white, and his dad and him were whistling the song Dixie in the car. And then he went home and was singing it at home, and his mom was like, "What are you doing?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then he went back and told his friend, you know, that, hey, that's racist. And his friend was like, oh, okay, sorry. And, and, and you know, and the, the play is kind of about mm-hmm. that, about racial experiences that people don't even realize are racist, right? The microaggressions, mm-hmm. all of that thing, all of those kinds of things. Um, the amount of microaggressions that, I have to correct among my students mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Um, and even just the silence and complacency of other teaching staff mm-hmm. be- because of their discomfort, yeah. they don't know what to say. So they say nothing, but then they don't realize how their silence is violence in a way because it's condoning the behavior. You know, yeah. um, I think about, um, I was watching a country music documentary, which I recommend for everybody. Ken Burns, who is one of my favorite documentarians. Now, it's a, it's a long extended one. Um, but he starts out, of course, with, you know, country music is so multifaceted. And there are so many things that have impressed upon it. Um, but, you know, even some of the early American songwriters like a Stephen Foster, you know, which an incredibly problematic, you know, individual. And Ken Burns, to whom I'm grateful for, for making sure that he let people know how problematic Stephen Foster's songs were. But these are songs that have ingrained themselves into American culture, not just American music, but American culture. And a lot of people will think nothing of them. Music educators will think nothing of them and have been teaching them in classrooms, like you said, to black and brown babies with no thought about, once again, the process over the product. 
what what is it that you're putting into the class? What is it? What kind of seeds are you sowing into the classroom by teaching repertoire like this? Yeah, it's so interesting. And you know, having three black sons of my own, mm -hmm. I have had to, of course, educate my family mm -hmm. and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And um, it's so interesting, you know, and and a lot of this stuff and a lot of the stuff and Teddy and I have spoken about this. A lot of the stuff is things that they have to sit with on their own. You know, although Teddy's a part of the family, he's like, I can't be around for these conversation conversations as a black man. They have to figure this yeah. out uh -huh. in their white because him being around creates a, a different dynamic mm -hmm. yeah. and they may not speak freely. Um, and really Teddy doesn't have to subject himself. No, he does not. To their we, discoveries. Let me tell you something. <laughs> you that, are tired mm -hmm. enough. <laughs> we, you know, my, my black colleagues and I, you know, for, first of all, this is black history month celebrating it. Um, and of course this is that, that month, you know, where we are <laughs> tasked, um, with educating about the spiritual in particular, which, you know what, it is part of my journey as an educator. However, we have tasked ourselves with not being responsible for being your library for every resource. Because I think about when you were in school, especially, you know, musicians, those are that, that, that were schooled in academe on in musical realm, if you had to go and do a research project on any of the Bach motets or the Brahms symphonies or any of the, you know, any of the Beethoven choral works or operas, you went to the library. You didn't you didn't go ask a musicologist. You went you went to the library. So you need to be doing the same thing if you're tasked on doing a project about, you know, black music history or any of the black, you know, but for whatever reason, they just feel like they need, immediately need to go, you know, to their sources there you know we have the well, books and we... you bring up a good point because mm -hmm. it wasn't until recently that roland carter mm -hmm. i'm just, it just pops in my mind um was added to the new grove music mm -hmm. dictionary right so then colleges need to invest in if 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 the black artists are not in the new grove dictionary then they mm -hmm. need to have the the african-american uh 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 Bibles, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know, with those music, so that the research is there at the fingertips. Yeah. Music of and, all of those books, the music of Black Americans, and 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 all of these things. I mean, they're out there, even if they're not in the library, they're on Amazon. So you need to invest in and go buy them, that's just true. like you just like we've had there. to do, you know. Right. So I I just yeah we so that just pinpoints Ted, Teddy is not he is. <laughs> He is not obligated to sit in those rooms and teach and coax and therapize them through their their issues. Yeah, it's yes. just not. No, mm -mm. Um, because we're having to, we're still having to therapize. You know, unfortunately, you know, one of the greatest crimes of American history, and there are many, is is the impression of slave mentality upon an entire race. And there are so many of my my family, and I talk about that the family as the entire whole, my, the collective, that are steeped in slave mentality, and it has killed us. It has it has handicapped us. Um, and there are so many things that we don't know about ourselves. You know, 
it's not just about teaching African-American history at PWIs. It's about teaching African-American history at HBCUs because many of us, like you said, didn't get it in the classroom headed up right. to. I used to think that all, I was naive in thinking that all black students knew about, you know, Wendell Whalum and Harry Thackerberry and even Motown and all that. They did not. Right. They did right. not. They did right. not. I mean, because you have you have such a diverse black people are so diverse, right? Mm -hmm. In and of, you know, and if you grew up in a predominantly white area or even if you grew up in an area that had some minorities, what were you exposed to in yeah. your school? You still want to fit in. You still want to be a part of the norm, the mm -hmm. average, whatever. And it's so interesting. It's all. It's just so, and and it's it's wonderful to talk about the complexities, and 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 even I have been doing research on Black history, and for years, and even I have to admit I did not know that there was a national theme for Black History Month every year. I found that mm -hmm. out this year. I did not know that. Um, you know, I, I always was so excited to present the music and do it yeah. as the music aspect of it. And this year, since I run a, a, a club called Deeply Rooted Culture mm -hmm. Club, um, so that's the education went a little bit past the music for me this year. Mm -hmm. And in my um, experience, like you said before, we teach from the rep, right? Yeah. The, mm -hmm. rep, the history through the rep. And so there wasn't that repertoire aspect this mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And it was so cool to explore. And I was like, I did not know there was a yeah. national theme. That is so cool. And part of the reason that inspired me to kind of reach out to you and to a few others, um, Black history definitely sparked the initiation of wanting to reach out. But this isn't a Black History Month feature, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Because Black history should be taught. As we know, three, 365, 24, seven. <laughs> and so um, it, calling you was inspired by February, but it's not the end. Oh, my gosh. It's yeah. not. This won't even be in February. I'm not. This won't even be presented Listen, in February. You've, you've and, been um, a you've been a fighter since I met you and long before <laughs> yes. then. So and, and you fight for it all. And I'm so grateful. And, and I always ta taught Jubilee when I was there that Jubilee was birthed from a fight. And I don't want them to ever stop fighting um, for themselves and for Jubilee, um, for the Jubilee that was before, for the Jubilee that is, for the Jubilee that comes after. Um, yes. Because it, you know, whatever happens to Westminster, Jubilee must never die. And it will never die because, you know, we are here. Um, and, 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 you know, I impressed upon that in our, in our last kind of Jubilee family conversation that we had, you know, Zoom. I said, we, we cannot let go of our younger, you know, um, our younger family members. You know, we've, we've got to hold them, especially during a time as this, because, you know, it's just totem pole. It is cast structure. I keep calling out that book, Isabel Wilkerson's Cast. I want everybody to read it. Um, but anywho, this cast structure. You know, unfortunately, Jubilee has consistently been, you know, put at the bottom of that totem pole. But I'll tell you this. I had a student from Jubilee ask me, he said, they said, how do I go about? And they were talking about just, you know, going into the music education system, being at a high school and trying to impress upon my administrators the validity of gospel music. And I said, I'll tell you this. I said, I'm tired of trying to validate the music because there's a deeper issue with that. 
if you can't validate the music, then you're not validating the humans that created that that created it, and if, and that is the larger issue. That's the larger issue. If your administration cannot validate the the art, then they are not validating the humans, and that means that you're not even validating the students that are in your schools. So you know, then then you have a larger issue to get into. That's, well, and that's mm-hmm. so interesting because I, I was in a situation, like I told you before, where it was a predominantly Hispanic community. So to do, to have a gospel choir or a, a, an African-American sacred music ensemble, mm-hmm. nobody even thought about it twice because everyone was Christian, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, there were no Jewish students at all in the school. Mm -hmm. And so um, to sing Christian music in a school setting wasn't an issue. Mm -hmm. Now, when I, when I came to where I am now, Teddy did one spiritual one time. And it was like, from now on, we need to approve all of your music. And, and it was, and I said to him, you know, of course, I was screaming my face off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, this is history. Yeah. This is this is a huge part of our history as Americans. This is not necessarily about Christian music. And you talked about coding, right? I mean, this was this is a huge part of the spiritual in and mm-hmm. of itself. So if we are not um, going to address that. And if we are not going to address the validity and the importance of these musics, these pieces, these people mm-hmm. to our students and our audience, right? We have to educate our audience as well. Um, then, then what are we doing in education? What are we doing? <laughs> we are not just sitting here teaching quarter notes and and right. and time signatures and key signatures. There's got to be something deeper than that you know but i i look at this you know once again we have this issue with spirituals and we try and you know put it under the guise of oh it's christian music bach everything that he wrote was solely deo gloria he was commissioned solely to the by glory the church of right God. All he worked for the church he worked for the, the king right and we do those pieces the history and of early choral music is built under the the impression of the church that was the that was but the because majority. it's in latin because it's in latin i mean we can kind of uh skate by the issue we don't even have to talk about the translation if we don't want to but that's another issue i do have to ask you we mm-hmm. we had such a great conversation i didn't even get to ask you half the questions i wanted to ask you <laughs> we had the but, necessary conversation yes today. no mm-hmm. absolutely and um but i do have to ask you one mm-hmm. more question um, like I told you before, the the choir that I am the youth director for is called Rise Up Chorus. Mm-hmm. So my final question for you is, what does Rise Up mean to you and in your life? Mm-hmm. Uh, let us see. Um, who is who? I just she's my sister more than anything now. But um, of course. Now, thirteen-time Grammy Grammy-nominated artist and just a, a a gem of a woman sent me a clip. Um, it was on YouTube, and it talked about the uh, the cocoon into the the caterpillar into the the caterpillar into the cocoon into the butterfly, and the woman beautifully talked about 
uh, just being present in your present. Mm. And when I talk about, when we think about rising up, for me today, and as I talk to other people, it is a sense of realization. And so I think if anything, it is just becoming more, more, just becoming more realizing of your present gift that you have to offer. You know, looking so far into the future will have you worried about everything that you do today. But if you just focus on, I really have something great to give to people today, then you've already elevated your concept. You know, that's that's what I would say. Self-realization. You have something very, very good to give to people today. Get through today. Wake up tomorrow. I've got something really great to give somebody today. And maybe that somebody is just you. Mm. I like that. Yeah, that's that. Thank you so much, Dr. Waddles, Brandon, (laughs) for coming and talking with me today. And um, we're all going to have our eye on you. Keep our eye out for all of those arrangements and transcriptions and original compositions. Yeah. Yeah. We got some we got some exciting stuff coming up. So you you got to write some uh, stuff for the babies, too, so that I can do. I have been writing stuff for the babies. Dr. Andre Thomas told me to stop writing hard stuff. So I'm (laughs) (laughs) so I'm writing stuff for the for the babies now. I love it. I love it. Will do. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Helen Kernazan, for such an insightful and passionate conversation. Also, I am forever grateful to Brandon Waddles for his honesty as he discusses this very important topic of understanding race in our musical world. As I have said in the past, I truly hope that these episodes are the impetus to enact change in our communities. A big thank you to our Meet the Musicians listening community. This podcast simply wouldn't exist without you and your incredible support. Please help us grow our listening community by spreading the word about Meet the Musicians. Share our podcast link through your social media accounts. Tell your friends in conversation about the podcast that they just have to listen to. Help us to make Meet the Musicians a household name. Until next time, this is Matthew Lapine saying thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to have you join us again for our next episode when we meet the musicians. You've been listening to Meet the Musicians, hosted by Matthew Lapine. This podcast is produced by Rise Up Chorus, a grassroots music organization whose focus is on bringing the community together through singing. For more information about Rise Up Chorus, visit us online at www.riseupchorus.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to join us next episode when we meet the musicians.